Good morning. I'm not sure if my mic is working right. It's working. Good. Well, I, I just want to say I'm, I'm so honored and privileged, Daniel and I both, to be visiting with you this morning. And already our visit has been so blessed um, to join with you in worship on a Sunday morning. And I'm excited, but I'm also very humbled to bring a message from God's Word this morning. Um, we're going to be camping out in Psalm 96. So if you have your Bible and, and you want to get to Psalm 96, that's where we'll be focusing most of our time this morning. I know last week, Pastor John spoke from Romans 15 about God's heart for the ends of the earth and those who have never heard Paul's ambition to reach those who had never heard. And, and I just want to keep going in that vein. Um, We're going to start with the first three verses from Psalm 96. So Psalm 96, starting in verse 1, says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. I think it's important and helpful for us to know whenever we're looking at a psalm in the Bible, what is the function of a psalm and what does that genre of writing tell us about what we should understand from it? Um, Basically, in the context of God's people, a psalm had a couple different functions. One is to be an expression of the heart, an expression of how you feel. Um, Another way that a psalm could function for the people of God is as an exhortation of the heart for how we ought to feel, a reminder of how we ought to feel, and in some ways a template that we can try to bring our hearts into alignment with so that we can be expressing the heart of God. And really, Psalm 96 here is a little bit less of a descriptive psalm and a little bit more of a prescriptive psalm. So rather than making lots of statements about God, there's a little bit more here that's urging the reader to do something, to respond to who God is. Um, You may, as we read through the psalm, you may find it to be a little bit familiar. That's because almost this entire psalm, word for word, is also recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, when David facilitated a time of worship to celebrate the return of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord into Jerusalem. So it's it's recorded in both places, and you get a little bit of context in 1 Chronicles 16. But since this is a psalm prescribing how God's people ought to respond to who God is, I thought it was appropriate to ask the question, who is God? So there are three things um, that I want to point out about who God is and, and what this psalm is responding to about God. First, God is the creator of all. Jeremiah 27:5 says God says, "It is I who by my great might and my outstretched hand have made the earth with the men and animals who are on the earth, and I give it to whoever whoever it seems right to me." 
And we see this in, in Psalm 96 a little bit later in the verses as well, that God has proclaimed himself as the creator, the owner, and the ruler of all the earth. Because he's the one who invented it. <laughs> he's, in, he's the one who invented all of existence. Second, God is holy above all. In 1 Samuel 2, 2, Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, she voiced a prayer to God in thanksgiving for providing her with a son. And in that prayer, she said, There is none holy like the Lord. For none beside, there's, there's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. God is set apart. He is over and above all other persons in holiness, in righteousness, and in justice, and in goodness. Third, God is the Redeemer of all. In Isaiah 43, 44, and 45, we see God declaring for himself in his own words who he is to his people and who he is to the people of the world. In Isaiah 43, 11, he says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. God is the only Savior. In Isaiah 44, 22, he says, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God is the Redeemer. And then in Isaiah 45, verse 22, he says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. So this isn't an exhaustive list of who God is, um, but God is, again, the creator of all, He's holy above all, and he is the redeemer of all. And this is the God that is in question for the psalmist in Psalm 96. It's the God who's in question for us as we concentrate on him and his word this morning. The psalmist urges the people, therefore, to respond to God in a way that's proportionate to who he is. And I want to just use an an illustration to explain what I mean by responding proportionately to who God is. Um, Michael Phelps is a swimmer who's known around the world as perhaps the best, greatest Olympian of all time. Many of you probably know who Michael Phelps is as an international athlete. Over the course of four different Olympic Games, he won more medals than any other athlete in history has ever won. Now, knowing this about Michael Phelps, suppose that I brought Michael Phelps with me here this morning, and I invited him to come up on stage to introduce him to you, and this was the introduction that I gave. Friends, I'd like to introduce you to Michael Phelps. He's a swimmer, a very successful one, in fact. Being from the Baltimore area, Michael Phelps is perhaps the fastest swimmer from the entire state of Maryland. That would be a pretty crummy introduction for Michael Phelps, right? (laughs) Why? Because Michael Phelps is so much more than just the fastest swimmer in Maryland. His greatness in swimming is not limited to one state in one country. In fact, it's not really limited to any geographic boundary. 
Michael Phelps has proven himself to be the greatest swimmer that the entire world has ever seen. Don't you think that maybe this would be a more fitting introduction? I am privileged this morning to introduce you to a man who needs no introduction, really. As a professional swimmer, he has won 28 Olympic medals, 23 of them gold. No other Olympian has ever come close to that number. For reference, by himself, he has acquired more gold medals than 160 different countries have acquired over the history of the games. He has broken not one, not two, but 39 different world records over the course of his swimming career. There has never been and there may never be another more dominant athlete in the remaining history of the earth. Now, I know we're just talking about a man right now, but in terms of his swimming accolades, doesn't that seem like a more proportionate response to his swimming accomplishments than what I previously said? That's the idea that I'm getting at here with why the psalmist is urging the readers, he's urging the people of God to respond proportionately to who God is. To respond to God as only the Savior of one nation, to respond to God as only the Savior of one neighborhood or one individual, as only holy uh, for a certain group of people, to respond to God as the local deity of some group would just be so disproportionate. Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the sea up here in North Texas, (laughs) but... It seems to me that the sea is entirely covered by water. And so this verse is telling us that the glory of the Lord is intended to and will fill the earth 100% pervasively. We also see this expressed poetically here in Psalm 96, starting in verse 9. It says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before, before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. You see, The psalmist is showing us that even creation, even inanimate objects, the things that God created for his people to live in and among and have dominion over, give glory to the Lord and were created to give glory to the Lord, much less the people of the world, which are the key accomplishment of God, the key feature of God in creation. His praiseworthiness is so great that it ought to fill all of existence. And nothing short of all people and all creation will suffice. In Isaiah 49.6, God, in his own words, is speaking to his servant, his coming servant, which 
we standing here today know is Jesus and all who take on his name. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So a very key feature of God's glory in the earth is his mercy and his salvation and his deliverance for people. God is extremely glorified whenever his salvation is recognized and received. Now, even in the midst of this psalm, which is primarily focusing on the scope of God's glory and the need to proportionately attribute to God the glory that is due his name, verses 4 and 5 in Psalm 96 seem a little bit dissonant with the rest of the psalm. They say, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. So right in the middle of the song, extolling the Lord of all the earth, the psalmist brings up other gods. The non-gods of the people surrounding the people of God. This really stands in stark contrast with the call in verse 8 for all tribes and peoples to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. They don't compute. They're not compatible. In their context, these verses brought to attention the nations around, around Israel who were placing their hope in false gods, in things that could not save. Today, in our context, they bring to attention the false religions, the empty ideologies, the meaningless accolades that billions are chasing after with no real hope attached to them. They bring to light the people like Hindra who are earnestly chasing after a way of life, a religion, a prescription that cannot save him. And so many more like him in Indonesia and all over the world. Sin and the fall of humanity have corrupted our world. We know that. We can see it. But the greatest consequence of the fall of humanity is not political strife and war, the greatest consequence of that fall is a lack of worship, a lack of acknowledging the living God for who he truly is. And unfortunately, this ran rampant in the time of ancient Israel and the psalmist, and it continues to run rampant today. Pastor John also mentioned and explained unreached people groups a little bit last week in his message. And I I would assume that for many of you, that's not the first time you've heard the term. And an unreached people group is basically an ethnic, linguistic group of people who are living with historically little to no access to the gospel message. And the existence of unreached people groups 
is really an even deeper level of brokenness in our world. If brokenness is that lack of worship of God, our creator, then this is an even deeper situation, a deeper issue. There are over 3 billion people living among unreached people groups with historically little to no access to the gospel. And not only are they living with their backs turned to God, but they don't even have the faintest idea what they're missing because it has not been declared to them. So we can clearly see, even just from Psalm 96 and and also from our own perspective and observations on the world, that what ought to be is not what is in our world. The number of people groups that live without any living witness for Christ among them, it, it should trouble us. But God, He has activated a mission to rectify the problem, to close the gap between what ought to be and what is. Verse 3 here in Psalm 96 is the key to that mission for us. Verse 3 says, Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. So as the people of God today, living in the 21st century, living after the time of Christ, we know that a new covenant has been ushered in through Jesus Christ. Now, any person from any cultural upbringing, not just the people of Israel, can know and experience God and claim Him as their God. Because the Son of God offered Himself as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and rose again from the dead to rule the universe... This invitation has been extended to everyone to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Saved from sin and saved from empty ways. That's the invitation at hand. Good news for every soul who will turn from their own sinful ways and turn to Jesus and His ways. This is the news that we are urged to declare especially to those who are living ignorant of the marvelous works of our mighty God. And until this news, this recognition of the news of God's salvation saturates all the nations and fills the globe, it remains disproportionate to God's glory and what God is due. I understand that uh, this year, You've given some attention to 1 Peter 2.19. Um, I think that 1 Peter 2.19 is one of the best links for us, the people living in the New Covenant, to Psalm 96 and the call in Psalm 96. 1 Peter 2.19 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now we are God's people. We're the stewards of the glorious redemption of Christ. 
all of us who have come to hope in Christ, regardless, again, of our cultural upbringing, of our ethnic upbringing. This verse tells us that we have been made into a new nation among the nations of the earth. He's gathered all of us diverse individuals into one race and given us one unified mission. Proclaim, the word proclaim here in 1 Peter 2.19 harkens back to the command to declare, the urge to declare from Psalm 96. And I think it's made even more undeniably clear in Mark 16.15. And that's where Jesus, toward the end of his time on earth, gave this command. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. See, the scope of our proclamation must also match the scope of his glory. Until Psalm 96.1 is fulfilled. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. You know, we read Revelation 7, 9 through 12 earlier. And this is a vision of future worshipers from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. We know that this vision is a promise. We know that it will be fulfilled. But a question that we have to ask ourselves is, if we know the direction that we are headed in as a world and as the people of God, how can we spend our lives and our energy moving in any other direction? How can Christ's church adopt any other purpose besides the one that ends in a multitude of worshipers from every nation, people, tribe and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As much as this message of God's glory, really the the global proportions of his glory is for God's people, it's for those who have already been redeemed, It's just as urgently a message for those living in darkness and worshiping everything but the living God. As much as it's for us here in Texas who know him, it's a truth that must be declared among those who have so much less historical access to the gospel than we have here in our culture in Texas. Now, I know not everybody here is from Texas. I'm not from Texas either. I'm from New Mexico. <laughs> but the truth is that there are places living void of gospel witness, and this truth is for them. Just as urgently as it's for us. It's a truth that is urgently to be declared among the unevangelized Muslims of Indonesia. Among, going back to Romans 15, those who have never been told of him and those who have never heard. So the basic urge that I have 
this morning is, people of God, let this be the song of our ambition. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all peoples. If you would join me in prayer, after we pray, we'll give a moment for reflection on the Word and how the Spirit of God is calling you in response to the Word. Father, my prayer is that we would respond proportionately to who you are. As people who have been called out of darkness and into your marvelous light, God, may we feel a holy dissatisfaction with anything but the ends of the earth recognizing you as Savior, recognizing you as King, as Creator, as Holy, as the waters cover the sea. Father, I pray for those from this congregation who have left comfort, who have left home and family as a response to you and a response to what you deserve and a response to what you want to do in this earth. God, would you bless them and would you raise up the people here to hold the rope for them, to feel the tug to the ends of the earth and to the darkest places. God, I pray that you would continue to bless this congregation with the gospel on their tongues to their community, to even many of the Muslims who are living in this area who are living in Dallas and celebrating Ramadan, more open to spiritual conversations than maybe otherwise in the year. God, would you place the testimony and the witness of Christ on our tongues that we would be unable to keep it from overflowing and we would play the part that you have for us in your global mission and not turn back from it, not stiff arm it, not neglect it. God, I pray that the ends of the earth would come to know you. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, your servant, your son. Amen.